0: This thing is really good. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if it's in, like, good shape anywhere else, but it was cool. We enjoyed it. Yeah, good watch out, Danny Boyle. British cinema, not all that bad.
1: <laughs> <Yeah. you know? laughs>
2: well, he, he he means, but we're great video makers. That's what he means. We're great digital video makers, you know? Oh, uh,
1: okay. No, he elaborated. He said they're great at uh, Middle Brow Theater and, and pop.
2: Oh, oh. That's what he said. Whoa. This is all coming from the guy who directed *Slumdog Millionaire*. Yeah, you know he,
1: he knows he's a bad filmmaker. He knows he, yeah, to yeah. say he knows he's, he's, he knows that as one of Britain's most lauded filmmakers, he's he's bad most of the time. Now the real question though, Ryan, is
2: where in his uh, where in his oeuvre do you rank his you know uh, London Olympics opening ceremony with uh, um, the Bond?
1: The Bond. That's <laughs> The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight
2: once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable
1: barrier. A gaunt, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. i tell you the truth. This guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> You want to crown
0: him? They crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the hook. It's hot, that's hot out there. Let's, we all walk
2: out there very, very, very... I open fire. Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stassiulis, and with me tonight are... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of us, one of the hosts... Selects a topic, a theme for the week, and the other two are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet that topic, address that topic in one way, shape, or form. This week, episode 75, I was just informed before we started recording, (laughs) Uh, it was my turn to pick the topic. And you know, I guess as a way of a of a preamble, uh, I should say that like a lot of people, last year I was mourning the loss of the great Jean Paul Belmondo, uh, one of the the absolute, and I don't use this word lightly, icons to me, in the history of cinema. One of the greatest actors to ever grace the big screen. And so, like a lot of people, you know, when we lose someone, particularly I think in in film, uh, we, we we tend to take another look at the movies we've seen and the movies we haven't seen and, and aspects of their career and and for me, I, I thought I knew quite a bit about Jean-Paul Belmondo. but at the time when I started diving into, particularly the things that I was unfamiliar with, the things that I hadn't seen, I discovered this whole portion of his career that I really knew nothing about. I'm sure like a lot of people, I had always just known him as this, this you know, this, this very cool, very dashing debonair actor of dramas and comedies, and especially the French New Wave. I mean, he was sort of the, the, the face of the early New Wave on a certain level, but I had no idea... That he took a turn at a certain point in his career for, shall we say, the commercial. That at a certain point he sort of was like, I'm sick of doing all this artsy-fartsy bullshit. I want to make some movies. I want to make some crowd-pleasing commercial genre films. And that's one thing. But the other part of it is that he also uh, basically... I, I refer to it only as, for me, his suicidal period, because a lot of these movies have a certain aspect to them that makes them really interesting and remarkable, which is that he, uh, in a lot of action films, was performing his own stunts. And it seemed with with one film to the next, as he was getting older and older, the stunts become bigger, wilder, more dangerous and more reckless. So I naturally was like I got to I got to see this shit. I got to get into this crazy period of his career that I had no idea about and naturally, then I I started trying to to find them and and some of them are actually you know they're they're hard to find because they are more commercial French films and and they aren't the typical international fare especially for someone I think like Jean-Paul Belmondo so it's been a struggle uh, but I have seen quite a few that have knocked my socks off. Uh, And that's really what I wanted to take a look at this week. I asked the boys to bring me some Belmondo action picks, thriller picks, some things from this this daredevil portion of his career. So specifically, these kinds of of commercial genre pictures he decided to start making in the 70s that... uh, also showcase a man, perhaps, uh, willing to kill himself for our viewing pleasure. <laughs> so that's that's the topic, really. I just said, bring me a bring me a Belmondo genre picture from from the '70s or the '80s. You know, in the later portion of his career, where he is is just uh, going bonkers, and we got two. Belmondo genre pictures, policiers, I guess you could say. And, you know, well, well, you know, one is, is, (laughs) is, is, is honestly a fucking like nonstop thrill ride. And the other one is, I think a very, you know, interesting film and one I had a lot of fun with, but maybe a little light on the stunts, but I'm already, you know, getting, getting ahead of ourselves here. So we might as well, we might as well just, just bring these, Pictures out. So, why don't we start with the earlier picture, which I
0: believe is Ryan's? Tell us what you brought us this week. Well, in college, I had a very good friend from France named Valentin, and he used to chide me about, you know, being an American cinephile and the kind of films that, you know, young. Americans think of when they think of France they think of Godard you know and he would often say to me like you don't know Jean-Paul Belmondo <laughs> like, you don't really know who he is like you like Breathless you like Piro Le Fou he's like This is Belmondo. And I remember at the time he had like just thrown at me like a drinking buddy comedy of Belmondo, if memory serves. I actually don't even remember seeing it when I was digging for for films for for this topic, like which film it might have been. But he he was the one that first introduced me to the idea that like in France, Belmondo is a little bit different, you know, at least by the French movie going public. Right? Like it wasn't just these new wave films that he was in in the 60s. He did have much more broad commercial appeal with a lot of the films he starred in. And that's why he's so revered and so beloved in France. That this man was an icon for a reason that people in the States don't often realize, you know, like a misconception about why France found John Belmondo to be such an object of, uh, worthy of obsession. And, you know, when you, when you reinvigorated the, this thought in my mind with this topic, I wanted to kind of go back and look at some of that, like that daredevil period. Right. Um, and sort of where, it, where it got started. And I know that in 1974, Belmondo had just done Stavisky, the Alain Rene film, um, which is, you know, very light on stunts, to, to say the least. Um, this one I got a little drowsy when I saw it at the Siskel like eight years ago or whatever it was. But, you know, as you said, Andy, right? Like, you know, he started to get a little tired of, of being in films like this. Not to say that he had any particular issues with working with Renee, but in the very next year, 1975, he starred in a film, Fear Over the City, a.k.a. The Night Caller*, directed by the French-Armenian filmmaker Henri Vernieu. Fear Over the City, right, like to me, as a bit of an outsider and understanding, late period Jean-Paul Belmondo, this is sort of how it was communicated to me. This is the equivalent of a French Tom Cruise. The amount of stunts that Belmondo is doing on screen and the amount of clear danger he was putting himself in is pretty invigorating i mean like i could sit here and talk a little bit about the plot of this movie but it is just so secondary to the daredevilry that we're seeing on screen the the film itself you know Belmondo is a cop jean l'atelier that um Towards the beginning of the film is trying to wrap up this investigation or at least some sort of issue with like more of a mafia man. Marcucci. Marcucci that, you know, it's sort of like the specter where like it was sort of a botched attempt at capturing him, uh, an innocent bystander is shot, you know, Latelier is blamed for a lot of this in his way of handling it. But simultaneously, women throughout Paris are getting phone calls late at night from this man who calls himself Minos who is, you know, obsessed with the divine comedy and and is just, he's killing all these women um, because of, you know, their supposed impurity. It's essentially a serial killer running amok throughout France that's creating all these late-night phone calls. And so, Belmondo, you know, he's the one that goes down the case. And the majority of this film is really just a couple chase sequences. And then, of course, the sort of commando raid of sorts near the end. Um, <laughs> But, like, the plot is so secondary, I feel like, to just the way this film feels as you watch it. It is just sensation after sensation. We've got car chases. We've got helicopters involved. There's incredible work on top of roofs, on top of moving trains, all sorts of stuff. And, I mean, I walked away being rather impressed with the way it was all shot and put together. It's a really nice-looking film and happened to be actually shot by the same exact person that shot the film that uh marsh picked same cinematographer kind of a fun little connection and uh you know beyond the stunts it's got a lot of those pleasures of just being a very european film from the 70s right like it's all these pastel colors very pleasant to look at and it just feels different than your typical thriller or action film from from america so i had a lot of fun i'm glad that you you had me uh, forced me to finally dive into the action work of Jean Pel Belmondo, and I'm excited to chew over uh, more of the particulars with, with Fear Over the City from 1975.
2: Yeah. Uh, another, uh, you know, we've had this happen a few times with a lot of the, the European and I guess just the international films we watch where we, we stumble into this thing where they all have three different titles. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Depending on where it was distributed, you know, you especially see that on on Letterboxd, you know, but it's it's the Night Caller slash Fear Over the City, and I think there's maybe one other title, isn't there? I think I might have seen I mean, there's the
0: French title, yeah. Le Perseville. Yeah.
2: Anyway, thank you, Ryan. Um, Marsh, how about the picture that you brought? What do you got for us?
1: Well... I, too, uh, was unfamiliar, practically speaking, with the, you know, middle to late period Belmondos. I I was aware of this phase in his career, but I uh, had yet to explore it. And so I, I didn't really know what to do. And I was dangerously close to picking Le Marginal uh, by my old pal Jacques Diray, which is you know an eight, an early eighties one where he's very leathery. Uh, and I was so close to to picking it, uh, and then I ultimately didn't. Subsequently, I watched it, and uh, oh my god, there are uh, some stunts in that movie that are I like again. I'm I'm still catching my breath from, you know, <laughs> shit, shit he did in like 1981 or whatever. Like he jumps onto a speedboat from a helicopter, you know, and he's like uh, not young. Nah, he was um, 50 when he made that movie. So anyway, that's all to say uh, the film that I ultimately settled on, uh, very low on the stunts, as you mentioned, which disappointed me. Uh, you know, it was a stab in the dark. Uh, There were other reasons that lured me to the film. Specifically, uh, I knew that Belmondo wore a fake mustache. And I also Mm -hmm. knew that Bruno Kramer played a sicko who's doing robberies and murders. And I was like, that to me, of course, sounds very appealing. Mm -hmm. And so the film I chose was La Palgueire aka The Hunter Will Get You, from 1976. This film was written and directed by Philippe Labreau, who was kind of a renaissance man. He was a journalist, he was a songwriter for Johnny Halliday, he acted in Godard films, he wrote books, he hosted TV shows, and also sometimes he made movies. And this is one of those movies. It concerns, of course, Belmondo in his, you know, star phase. It's all about him, and it's all about how cool he is. And in this film, he plays a bounty hunter, the titular Le or whatever the fuck it means. It means something like hunter. And he is literally uh, <laughs> just that, a big-game hunter turned hunter of man. He works for this, like, shady, you know, like, shadow government uh, sort of cabal uh, doing extra-legal police work, you know, in these sensitive situations, and really it reminded me uh, superficially of one of the first films we ever watched on the pod the hunter starring steve mcqueen because we do see uh belmondo as the hunter go through a series of of cases really it's not just one plot in this film but uh multiple and then they kind of overlap uh and of course all in the service of him you know outsmarting everyone out uh you know just just whatever being being really great yeah uh, basically you know as <laughs> and very this lo- cool yeah this, this loner you know and then yes meanwhile there's you know uh, there's a psychopath who's just like blowing tons of people away uh, and ultimately that all converges uh in a bloodbath a series of bloodbaths it's a uh like like ryan said about his film uh, this is also a nice looking film you know very handsome uh mid 70s uh, film style. You know, really pleasant to look at. And Belmondo gets to try on, you know, some disguises uh, and and some other odds and ends that I really did appreciate. And I think you can also see, you know, like the Bond influence on Belmondo. He's using devices. uh, And yeah, he's really like a spy as much as he is uh, a bounty hunter. So I think you can see, you know, especially uh, through these two films that like, His persona can kind of like fit into anything. It's kind of a spy film bounty hunter thing like no problem he'll crack jokes he'll you know he'll get to the bottom of it is it a cop thing well he'll crack jokes and get to the bottom of it and like jump on stuff um so you know uh (laughs) yeah other than the fact that like there's not you know there's not any suicidal things that he does in this movie at one point he like runs really fast (laughs) which is very (laughs) which is very (laughs) exhilarating but uh it's not exactly yeah jumping onto a speedboat or whatever but anyway, uh, that's, uh, that's what I chose. Thank you. Thank you both.
2: Yeah. It's, 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 it's unfortunate because like, as I was watching the, the double feature, uh, you know, I, I watched the Hunter will get you first. I hadn't seen either of these, you know, these were two that had been on my list and I'd, I'd seen uh, a few other Belmondo films from this. I'm calling it his suicidal period, uh, <laughs> And, and I was, I, I, you know, Marsh, as I was, you know, working my way through it, like I, I just kept kind of being like, oh yeah, you know, this is cool. This is good. But I kept being like, when's he going to try to kill himself? (laughs) like When's he going to try to kill himself on screen? And even though, yeah, he, he doesn't really reach that kind of level you know it's it's still i think a, a really good showcase for the for him for what makes him charismatic such a you know singular presence in films and then of course when i was not even halfway through uh you know fear over the city the night caller i felt i felt kind of bad because i was like this the Hunter Will Get You is now being just completely upstaged by <laughs> exactly what I was talking about, exactly what I was looking for. Uh, so it's good. I'm I'm so glad that that you know that they both deliver pleasures and they both deliver thrills. And I think we got we got a little bit of we got a little bit of everything uh, from from this week's double feature. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it, again, just to give people a little bit more background onto this for, for Belmondo, because you kind of even brought it up in your, your intro, um, you know, in the early 70s, a lot of these films developed because, you know, he sort of had this 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 vision this idea of being like I have to start producing my own films like I have to you know take charge of my own persona because you know by the late 60s he was just such a huge draw to the French box office. And he was starting to become a huge draw in the international box office. And there were inroads that, that Hollywood was trying to make, to bring him to Hollywood, to make him, you know, an English language star as well. And he, he had this period where he sort of hung out in Hollywood for a little while, but then ultimately decided like, nah, I want to make French movies. I want to be I want to be the the biggest fucking star in French cinema history. And in order to do that, he then created his production company, Cerrito Films, which actually produced both of these projects. And I think that's why from the get go, you know, there's, I think, a lot of similarities between the films minus the stunts. You know, one is a, a virtuosic uh, uh, example of his stunt work, but they are both, you know, within five minutes, making it very clear to us, like what these movies are about. And that is Belmondo, Belmondo as the king of cool. Uh, so, you know, I, I do actually think that in spite of what we've said, there is a lot That these movies do have in common in their plots, in their structures and in their their uh, their absolute
1: adoration of the central star of the film. You know, it's really funny to me, too, to elaborate on what you were saying about him founding his company, Andy, a lot of you know, I did a little research and a lot of what I could find, you know, written about Belmondo often is talking also about Alain Delon. Mm-hmm. And I know specifically that, you know, part of the whole reason he wanted to like create his own films is because of his experience on Borsellino which I've seen and is a bad movie. And it, it's also a movie where Belmondo upstages DeLon. DeLon is wooden and Belmondo is very charming and DeLon produced the film and then they sued each other and they didn't talk for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And subsequently Belmondo was like, I need to be the boss Mm -hmm. like DeLon, you know? And he was always a bigger star than than Delon, you know, uh, commercially speaking, uh, and was, yeah, like the reigning king of the box office until the mid 80s.
2: Yeah, you know, it's like I think when people, you know, in their minds, you think of like cool French actors from like the mid century, when you think of like you know, like, yes, like an icon of of French cinema. Those are probably the two names that'll pop up in like most people's heads who are familiar with, you know, any French cinema really from like 1950 to like 1980. It's going to be Belmondo Delon, Belmondo Delon. So it is such an interesting story that in their like, I think only collaboration, these two like big, big forces naturally would, would, um, walk away despising one another. But yeah, I, I I know I read an interview with Belmondo where he said that, that it was like, you know, he was cool on the set, but like as soon as the the movie ended, like then it suddenly just became like in his mind, in Belmondo's mind, an Alain Delon film. And he felt very slighted by that. I think the the initial mm. falling out was just even over... Uh, their names in the opening credits, And and screen
1: time and things like that. You know, it was very, like, actor, ego, uh, battle type stuff. Yeah, it was
2: in their contracts that they had to have the same amount of close-ups in the final cut of the film. I mean, insane, insane, like, narcissistic fucking, like, star shit, you know? But you're right. I mean, like, that that was it for him. He then was just like, that's it. It's never going to happen to me again. I'm going to make... Belmondo movies and quite frankly like I'm here for it I love it you know yeah like, I mean
0: and it's so clear that that's what both of these films are like as you mentioned it's, it's it's own his own production company it's clearly a family affair there's a few other Belmondos that you can spot at least in the credits of Hunter Will Get You I think the production manager I think his sister plays like a uh, someone on the airplane like a flight attendant maybe at one point but it is The thing I liked about this double feature, because I had a very similar experience, is you, Andy. I popped on. Hunter will get you first. And it was as if everything I was nervous about with the topic was starting to come true, where I was like, whew, like this... This one's a little long, you know, there's there's not there's not a ton of stuff going on here. Like I I enjoyed looking at it and, and participating in the film, but I was a bit worn down by the end of it. And I was like, man, oh, man, like I got to pop on the night caller now and it's two hours long. But pretty quickly in the night caller, it, it's quite clear that, you know, the speed is getting ramped up. You know, they're they're cranking the dial and you're in for... Buckle up. Yeah, you're in for a wild ride. But they do work together in an interesting way. They feel as though it was a purposeful deployment not that the films were released at the exact same time but it does feel like a typical a picture b picture scenario right with the hunter being one that like you kind of come in you enjoy you're watching belmondo you're there because for him and then there's really the main event when when the night caller starts up next you know and then you're in for like a real a real treat and i mean the thing that drew me to the night caller and i think this element is shared in Hunter Will Get You was something that was in your original prompt when you you mentioned it. And that's this idea of Belmondo kind of doing a Charles Bronson turn in his career and i kept thinking about bronson when i was scrolling through all these films and thinking about like here's this older guy who's so charismatic and so unique being an action star and i was thinking well what's something that's so common in charles bronson films it's for some reason we've got this guy who's going after people who are who are killing young women or just killing people who are seen as impure you know and going on this vengeful quest to 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 stop those those horrible figures, right? And in both films, there's a little bit of that, right? Like there are literal women being killed in The Night Caller that Belmondo is like taking it upon himself to to take charge of and go after that serial killer. And then in The Hunter Will Get You, There's it's a little bit different, but there is someone who is going around committing all of these mass killings and also killing these young boys that he's taking under his wing. So there's this like psychosexual stuff going on in both films that is like very at odds with Belmondo, the you know the character that is you know he's he's by the well not by the book but you know he believes in. <laughs> no, him. he's not. No, he is just not. you know very much yeah. not by the book, but you know what I mean, right? Like no, he's, he believes in Belmondo. Exactly. Yes. Just as Bronson believes in Bronson. That that that's a way of putting it. Yes. Because
1: he is an outcast <laughs> in both films. In in the Night Caller, Fear Over the City, he has been you know shuttled off of the gang force because of this blunder where his partner got. Domed in this like daring, you know, heist escape or whatever. And so he's like been demoted and he's like fed up. And so he's like marginalized as uh, a police officer. He's the, he's always the loner, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll have uh, a friend like he does in Fear Over the City, right? He's got uh, that classic French guy with the pointy face um, mm-hmm. as, oh, yeah. his, as his partner. That guy's in
0: like fucking everything. He's yeah, great. Yeah, really quick just the most French-looking people I've ever seen in both of these films. Like a cartoon caricature of, of a Frenchman. Yeah. Charles Denner. Yeah, just a gallery of faces.
1: Again, to extend the, the loner aspect of The Hunter Will Get You, of course he's, yeah, this, this bounty hunter works for himself and specifically at the moment for these like shady French government guys. But it's just that that also allows these films to hedge, because in both films and in also le marginal and also uh the burglars which i watched from 1971 corrupt cops in all of them corrupt politicians in all of them so like again they hedge in every way because it's like on the one hand yeah they're you know Belmondo like acts like a a stormtrooper; he does whatever he does whatever he wants but he does it with a smile and he does it he does it with a bunch of jokes to go like well, this isn't serious, folks. This is all pretend, right? And then at the same time, he's still, like, against the system in the context of the film. So, like, again, it all is, like, he's the, he's the man, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> Yeah. It, <laughs> I mean, dude, like, in, in,
2: uh, in Fear Over the City, I think this is so... It's established so well from, like, his introduction in the film. In, in Fear of the City, where, you know, our first glimpse of him is of course in a very cheeky way, just his back, right? We don't see Belmondo's face. We see two cops entering a bar in France. And this is of course after the the opening crime where we see a woman basically terrorized to death where she yeah. throws herself, you know, out of the the window of her apartment after receiving all these these just dis- deranged, Got disturbing another
1: like phone calls. person out of a window on the gauntlet it was
0: nice to see a dummy like fly out of window at the top of a film as opposed to the very end of one that was like a fun way of shaking it up and for what it's worth i
2: loved the 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 dummy throw in this one like yeah they like followed it more or less like all the way down and
0: had a really satisfying like spop as it hit this like puddle of water or something. Yeah, it was like the little, like, fountain outside of the apartment complex. It was a nice, satisfying, like, smack. Yeah, it was brutal.
1: Yeah, it it was, you know, it, it established the tone. It's a really good sequence. I mean, I think, too, like... No offense to Labro, but like Verniel here is like demonstrating he's like a real ass director. Yeah, like yeah. all those dollies, like the dizzying nature of the opening with all the calls and then just like building to, you know, some guy just like ringing the doorbell and a woman going out the window. Yeah. It's a very sophisticated scene,
0: mm-hmm. you know, and you can tell there's a lot of resources uh, going yeah. into it and I mean I haven't seen any other films he's directed but my understanding of this guy is that you know he was one that was very much at odds with the French New Wave at the time like he stood for everything they were opposed to you know he was the tradition of quality he was someone that had lots of resources made the equivalent of American blockbusters but in France so it's clear here that a guy like that would have something that was as sturdy as a film as The Night Caller right and I mean like that opening is it's almost veers
1: into like giallo territory it's it very, is an italian co-production this film
0: well that that is showing for sure right off the bat i love how what was presumably like a backdrop that they used for outside of the window of that apartment building where the sky was like blood red yeah that was, was like quite pink. nice yeah it was like yeah. crazy looking
2: I wanted to get back to what I my setup. This we we (laughs) took a very gauntlet free jazz turn. What what I was really (laughs) focusing on was the splat. No 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 was was (laughs) Belmondo his introduction after Uh, the splat, where he walks into this bar and and he is trying to shake down the owner of this bar for information about. Marcucci information about this bank robber that he's he's really after his yeah. real obsession and so he's like shaking down this guy and and then in the course of trying to get information out of this guy with a really funny joke to about uh, like a little visual gag about Jean Gabin, oh, yeah. uh, he, he and his partner discover a little like trap door in the bar and they go down into it, you know, of course, suspecting contraband or something illegal. And what they find is actually a group of presumably migrant workers from Mali, from Africa, who the owner of the bar is charging an exorbitant fee for them to, you know, live sans papier uh, in the basement of this bar, right? This this crime, this exploitation of humanity. And so, of course, you know, you're thinking like, ah, here's a good deed he's going to do. But But no, he just goes back up and uses it as leverage against this guy, you know, to be like, yeah, you better tell me who this dude is. I need to find out information about this guy that you have. And, and, and really, it's not even about the workers. Like, in the process of no. them just, like, going down in the dark with guns drawn, these poor people inside, like, are scared, and they, they just lash out at the at the dark figures with a knife, you know, holding a gun. And so his partner's got a little cut on his arm. And so, really, they they use that against him. You know, they get the knife, and they're sort of like, hey, you attacked a police officer. You know, that's a serious crime. No mention of what's going on in the basement though. Right. And in point of fact, like once the guy like does spill the beans, they don't say, all right. And by the way, like, you know, you're, you're, you're abusing these people. You're taking advantage of them. They just fucking leave.
0: (laughs) They just leave all those people in the basement. He repeatedly says, We saw nothing down there. How could we possibly have been stabbed if there wasn't a single soul down in that basement? He's a guy that doesn't actually care about human rights.
1: He's just in it for personal revenge. And that's the it. whole time. Yeah. He he wants the gangster, Marcucci. And in fact, he allows another person, a woman to be murdered later in the film because he lets the serial killer go because he would rather catch Marcucci because it's personal. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he clearly doesn't give a shit about about anyone. And it's funny, like
0: this was sort of just an accident. I don't think this was intended by the filmmaker, but. That frustration you feel when he does abandon the chase of the serial killer to go after the Marcucci, the the gangster, because when he does, like, abandon that, it's, if I remember correctly, it's taking place in that big super mall, and it's, like, this glimpse of a mid-70s French super mall of just, like, all of these rich people. Like, I wanted a full chase inside of that space and that's like when he starts to get the call like no we got to get out to the car like we know where marcucci is you know Mm -hmm. but i would have loved a police story-esque you know big belmondo set piece in that mall with all of that glass and all of that glamour
2: i mean yeah again like both of these both of the 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 figures that he's playing are are very like similar individuals where yeah they're they're both very You know, on a certain level, mercenaries, even though in Fear of the City, he's a cop, he's a a part of the state apparatus, as Marsh pointed out, like, he's kind of just doing what he prefers to do at any moment, you know, (laughs) despite what his... Uh, you know his bosses, his supervisors want him to do, despite even what his colleagues at times want him to do. I mean, he is just, yeah, he is he is motivated by his own his own desires at at every turn, and I, it's very similar to the hunter will get you because the whole point of of his like you know drive, as Marsh you know illustrated in his introduction, is that he is. He's in this for the hunt and the idea of, like, hunting a man, the the greatest game, the the most dangerous game, (laughs) if you will. But even then, it isn't about whatever these people have done. It isn't about their crimes. It's simply that the hunter always gets his man. And, you know, there's even a point where he reveals, like, all of this is very commercial. Like, he makes it very clear he gets paid to circumvent the law to go after people in shall we say uh, less official means by by less official means and he's taking all this money to build the i mean again ultimate loner shit to build like a one man island somewhere yeah, in the man pacific shit, dude. yeah dude he's got the photograph you know and he's just like this is it you know after this next big one i am going here and 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 i'm saying fuck you to the
0: world fuck you to france fuck you to 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 everyone and everything i'm just gonna do me and i guess cor- correct me if i'm wrong but in the hunter will get you isn't he also as a mercenary being paid by the police with money that the police have like stolen from criminals yes. isn't that like yeah so that's his main source of revenue yeah it's from the secret fund yeah yeah <laughs> So even if he's not the shitty cop in it, like it is quite clear that these corrupt cops are, you know, they have their ways of funding these expenditures. Oh, yeah. (laughs) John Paul. Coffee, coffee brandy cigar. cigar. Dude, his catchphrase. <laughs>
1: coffee brandy cigar. What a catchphrase. And there's dude. several points where he tries to feed guys nuts. Yeah. Uh, which is a, incredible, like light comic touches. Like he tries to feed this like French minister a little nut. Uh, and then later
0: feeds like a guy working at a restaurant or whatever. Anyway. hmm Yeah, he's very much like a man who is clearly a star in a movie surrounded by a bunch of people who are clearly not stars because he's the only one doing gestures like that like feeding people nuts and then especially in the hunter will get you i mean his wardrobe alone is worth the price of admission leather trench coat yeah not only is he just like changing mustaches and glasses and things like that you know he's got a standard outfit in fear over the city but in the hunter will get you I mean, we should just have a graphic on display for this film of all the different outfits that he wears, especially when he's in the casino, like really channeling James Bond, you know, and he's just like has to do like a quick costume change. It's a sharp looking guy.
2: Oh, dude. I mean, honestly, that whole casino sequence, I I was just like, I was having I was having a very good time with that. I, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Cause like, first of all, to me, the the biggest you know, whether intentional or not, but like gag of the whole thing is, as Marsh described, he's 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 donning a disguise and he puts on a fake mustache and fake eyebrows and like, that's it. And some glasses. 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 Yeah. But it is like, it's so funny because he's like, within the same like scene he will at times like go and take the disguise off and then come back and and like talk to the exact same people <laughs> and no one no one recognizes him no one even does a double take like this kind of looks like the guy that was here Five fucking minutes ago, <laughs> you know? <laughs> same hair, same build, s- same nose.
1: Yeah, this guy isn't distinct-looking at all. <laughs> no,
0: yeah. no. Yeah, this guy's clearly not a star.
1: <laughs> yeah. he's <laughs> squashed-ass, like, pug nose, dude. Like. Yeah, and, and all his aliases, too. At that point, he's... Uh, Johnny Lafault dude, right? you know? Or Roger PR. Dude, low key, one of my favorite names ever in
2: any French movie is when like a French guy is called Johnny. Like I just <laughs>
0: yes. I just love it, dude. I, I love that love the, uh, the like, main security attendant of the uh, apartment building in Fear Over the City, his name is Eugene, but it was pronounced oujon and I thought that was, like, very nice. It's like, a very nice way of hearing it pronounced. But then, you know, even in The Hunter Will Get You, I was thinking about Charles Bronson a lot in it, and I was thinking about later Bronson where it's almost as though he's uh, evoking a minimal amount of physical effort in order to convey just like getting the scenes done you Mm -hmm. know and I was thinking about uh, in The Hunter Will Get You there's a really funny sequence where after the casino and he learns like where this big meeting's about to take place like in this like area with all these camper vans he like has this harness it's just such a great image of of Jean-Paul Belmondo like wrapped up in this harness underneath like a trailer and he's drilling underneath to like stick in some microphone and then eventually, like, nitrous oxide laughing to give them all gas. laughing gas. <laughs> but just, I love that, you know, instead of being, like, really sleek and and sneaking up and, like, having this intense, you know, spy music as he's, like, setting up his gadgets, it's just this big man, like, in a, <laughs> like, completely prone in a harness, like, laying underneath this thing, just yeah. at work, very relaxed. Looks like a hammock to me. Yeah. Sure,
2: yeah. Dude, it yeah. is. it is at the same time, like uh it looks incredibly involved and intricate and incredibly lazy like yeah. it is it is like this perfect balance of both and i think that's that's something for me that i've you know i think you see it in in all of his performances on a certain level he has this 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 grace this oh my god this yeah. like dancer's ability to sort of like you know move effortlessly through his his characters, his scenes, you know, and obviously people have discussed this but but you know he was a boxer early on in his life and and I think it shows the man has his incredible nose is clearly broken well, several his nose, times. Has, his <laughs> nose has been smashed up pretty good but but again he he has this this very minimalistic way that you've described Brian of sort of like moving of only utilizing like what's absolutely necessary for him to execute Uh, uh, a punch, uh, uh, a pirouette, uh, a set of stairs, whatever that is, you know? It is this very, very sort of hypnotic way that he can move, which then is, of course, like completely mind-blowing when he flips that switch and can kick it into fucking overdrive, and you do see some of the insane stunt work that you get. I mean, man, his fight sequences are are awesome, because the guy understands, like, how you actually hit people, how you punch people,
0: how you, how you avoid a punch, how you move. Yeah, it's a funny contrast where with The Hunter Will Get You, it's really befitting the character, of course, his performance style and the way he, like, moves around. Like, as they even say in the film, this man is is neither Zorro or Fantomas, you know? Like, he's he's just in it for the money. But then in Fear Over the City, we have Jean-Paul Belmondo as Zorro, as Fantomas, you know? Like, he is someone who is, like... Doing everything with a shit ton of flair and going after these people with like a personal vendetta associated with it. The way he's like hop, skipping, jumping all across France, jumping all over shit, you know, that feels like Zorro. You know, that's not just a guy that's in it for the money. That's someone who who loves the game, who has that like weird, crazy Tom Cruise energy as he's as he's traipsing around France. Yeah, he's got his
1: safety last moment in Fear Over the City when he chases Minos to the Rooftops, and it's, you know, super classic because it's just like a Parisian cityscape, but then Belmondo's like hanging off the side of a building and slipping on the roof over and over again, mm-hmm. and it's like really thrilling stuff. I could only think you know, once again, a callback to the to the silent greats, you know? Just a man like struggling on a ledge,
0: like that's cinema, because he's like actually struggling on a ledge. Yeah, and it's shot so classically too, where it feels as though it's harkening back to silent cinema in order to evoke certain senses of scale because the way that Paris at large is framed in the backdrop of all of these images of him on the roof and him hanging and then like these old ass Parisian gutters just like bending and breaking under the weight of Jean-Paul Belmondo like holding on to it it was legitimately thrilling you know and i think because it wasn't this like gritty handheld look at it that it was like so composed and arranged, like it still somehow evoked like so much more because of that and man like there are you know there are multiple moments of him like
2: dangling precariously from ledges throughout fear over the city and and i also like was just like blown away by how many times when he is suddenly, like, slipping off of a a balcony, a ledge, this roof we're describing. Like, you flat out see Belmondo, like, drop one arm and for for a little while just hold his entire body up with just one hand on whatever surface it is. I mean, this dude, as I, like, dived more into this stuff, like, I just really was just like, man, he was a fucking physical specimen. Yeah, he like,
1: worked out a ton.
2: Oh, my God, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. For him to pull a lot of this stuff off without safety harnesses, obvious visible safety harnesses anyway. I mean, like, honestly, like, I've never seen Clint Eastwood or Bronson go anywhere near the kind of, of Not even close. very clear and obvious peril physical peril that he puts himself through in even a moment of fear over the city.
1: I want to throw some more comparisons at you because there was a really great film comment piece about Belmondo and Delon in 2018 uh, by Julian Allen. And they write, cinematically speaking, the American equivalent of Alain Delon was not Paul Newman, but Charles Bronson. The American equivalent of Jean-Paul Belmondo was not Burt Lancaster, but Burt Reynolds. Mm. What do you think about that? I like it. I mean, I like it. I think Burt, yeah, he had a, a
2: similar sort of blossoming later in his life, in his career, to a much more... Uh, you know, outward action star, and you know, Bert like Belmondo very much understood that he was making Bert Reynolds films. <laughs> he produced his own yeah. films. He directed a few. Uh, to really manage that, that that you know, obviously you can make the narcissistic jokes about that. You know, these egomaniacs, but I think they also understood, like those figures you referenced from the silent era that it was like the draw for the audience is seeing me buster keaton nearly die like this is the draw they want to see me they don't want to see a double they want to see me as much as possible they the the authenticity of my presence in these moments is what is going to craft this incredibly uh, you know, Ryan's used this word several times. Thrilling experience for <laughs> for the audience. So I like it. I mean, I see the I see the similarity there. I think I think Bert also understands uh, uh, good comedic timing, like Belmondo. You know, I mean, Bronson can certainly deliver one liners, but I I you know, and taking nothing away from Bronson, uh, you know, I don't think he's as extroverted as a
1: Burt Reynolds could be or a Belmondo could be. I read a great quote from Delon on this subject where he said, uh, you know, about his inability to sort of branch branch out in, in you know, comedic roles. He said, uh, Belmondo only has to stick his head around the door and everyone laughs. <laughs> when I stick my head around the door, nothing happens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I feel like when I was watching that movie, I could hear the audiences in France in the mid 70s reacting to it. You know, every time he gives you one of those perfectly calculated smiles when like you the camera just never lets you forget that it is Jean-Paul Belmondo sliding down that roof. Like I could I could feel the buzz of, you know, the French movie going public at the time because these films both I believe were like top grossing french movies in their respective years it's like they both did extremely well uh in within their own country oh yeah i think that belmondo in that regard you know not to just make this
2: like a you know belmondo versus Delon week but i think in that can't escape it, can't escape it can't escape it you know i mean dude i read an interview with belmondo he's still talking about the shit in the 90s so like i i i get it but like you know i, I think belmondo You know, being a guy who understood what his fucking mug looked like after being a boxer, like, I I think he is much more willing throughout his films to make himself look ridiculous, to make himself look you know, ugly to make himself look stupid and and that, that is part of the draw. And I think that Delon is a guy to me who has always struck me as as a man who wants everyone to know just how handsome he is, you know, just how how good he looks in a fedora. And and I think maybe that's, you know, um projecting too much of my own shit onto that but no but, but
1: no do you think about it this way Delon invested in like cosmetics he had like co- a cosmetics brand and Belmondo invested in wine right <laughs> <Yeah>. i mean
0: <laughs> think about mm-hmm. that you know for sure yeah, you know thinking about sure. all these other like just like notorious stunt dudes and you marsh mentioning that there are many moments in the hunter will get you that like remind you of the hunter the steve mcqueen film that we watched and like steve McQueen's stunts i mean there is a very similar stunt that steve mcqueen does in that movie that he does in that john Pell belmondo does in the night caller which is like atop the the subway car you yes. know uh, like an extended set piece of belmondo on top of a train and i read a really funny little bit of trivia about that sequence because I was curious like how they pulled it off, you know, because it's really, really quite long and it traverses multiple train stations and like (laughs) does go above ground at at one point. And I I was reading that. um, So it was that for the metro scene, they had the film crew like shoot that scene from midnight till 5 a.m. every single day that they were doing it because that was just like the only time the trains like weren't running at a similar regular schedule that they could pull this off. And um, at the end, one of the Metro drivers said to Belmondo, I wouldn't have done this for a million francs. And to which Belmondo replied, Neither did I. <laughs> 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 that was kind of nice. <laughs> king, king shit. I mean king, king shit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that scene rocks. Oh my god. That scene's so awesome.
2: And really we should we should point out that like that scene is is embedded within the this this extended chase that has already
1: seen him dangle from it's the two, roof. two chases in a row, which is really one chase with two different cr-
0: criminals. It has to be at least like 30 minutes of the movie. I didn't yeah. clock it, but it is like the meat of this film are these like back-to-back chases. Yeah,
1: it's like the entire second act. Oh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is it
2: is just like a series of set pieces strung together and, and managed incredibly well by the director. And I think you kind of pointed this out, Marsh, that obviously, like, a big difference between these two films is that one was directed by a guy who was very seasoned and had made a lot of movies, uh, relatively speaking, and the other guy hadn't. You know, Labro hadn't made as many films. I mean, I think his entire output I I discovered was like eight features in however long his career was. And he had worked with Belmondo before, but like action directing, like, you know, it, it takes uh, a lot of, you know, logistics and care and planning and organization to, to really, you know, pull off this big kind of stuff that we're seeing in in the movie. I mean, it is, it is several set pieces, several different locations that you've already described, Ryan, connected in a way in which we are following it, we're there, the stakes are getting raised with each moment. I mean, just even in the, the sort of like, you know, interlude between the two more death-defying moments, there's an awesome bit where he corners him in like just a, a section of the, the backstock that's filled with mannequins and just the, the, again, the composition of
1: Jallo moment,
2: dude. Yeah. Like, yeah, this fucking Jallo moment, (laughs) like it, it suddenly becomes like horror. I mean, it is creepy. It is unsettling. The amount of
0: mannequins. That scene is so funny because they fire off so many shots at each other and like mannequin heads explode and then like a worker just walks in after they're done (laughs) trading gunfire with like more mannequins on a cart to like Not reacting at all. No, it's as if he didn't hear any of the shots, which like I find impossible to believe, but like love that that's the suggestion that he's just replenishing these mannequins after like a huge shootout. Now
1: while... Fear Over the City is all about these, you know, action set pieces. Hunter Will Get You is more about Belmondo trying on personas and, like, looks, you know, the more that I think about it, because instead of a a second act that's just like a 30-minute chase, uh, in Hunter Will Get You, the second act basically is Belmondo goes to prison, Because, you know, he's doing all this shit, like, extra legally or whatever, you know, the the shadowy minister arranges for him to infiltrate the prison so he can get information out of the only survivor of uh, Bruno Kramer's jewelry store massacre.
2: Because, you know, we haven't really detailed that for the listeners, but, like, it is, I think—and I I know you, So like, I know— part of the hook that that lured you in, you know, to to this picture and and the setup, particularly with Bruno Kramer's style of of thievery or or his, you know, the mechanics of his heists, uh, which is that. you know, he doesn't execute his, his crimes necessarily by himself or directly. It's that he lures in these sort of like lost young men, these young boys. And there's a, uh, there are hints that aren't really developed, you know, of his perhaps, you know, own psychosexual predatory
1: homosexuality right, reasons <laughs> yeah. for,
2: for preying on these like young men, these, these young men that also have a
0: physical type, you know, um, Um, Yeah. Very classic, like European 70s shit of like the villain is gay, you know, and like that's why he's so frightening, you know, because he's got this sexual edge to him a bit more perverse than your average killer.
2: Exactly. And I I have to say again, like, you know, I don't I don't want us to entirely shit on the hunter. We'll get you. Uh, You know, it's just that it is so completely like, you know, uh, blown out of the water by the virtuoso stunt work of of Fear of the City, but, like, man, the the opening heist of The Hunter Will Get You, where we're introduced to Bruno Kramer, yeah, was... That did deliver. Awesome. And I know, yeah. Marsh, you are our resident heist expert, so, you know, perhaps you can detail
1: some of what makes it so fucking wild. Well, I mean, ultimately, it's because, you know, the Hawk, as he's known, uh, Gilbert as he's known by day uh, when he works for the airlines, but uh, the Hawk, uh, he just doesn't give a fuck and will kill anyone. And that's, you know, a a scary thing, obviously. And so like, I mean, his high strategy is like, it's always going wrong. It seems (laughs) so like it can't be that good, but yeah, he, he recruits these young boys Promises them, you know, uh, money, motorcycles, whatever, and then has them do the holdup. But the first one we see goes bad, but he's prepared. He immediately dons a French policeman's uniform and bursts in on the jewelry store, shoots the owner, shoots the kid, two cops burst in. He kills two cops and then just like walks away with the jewels yeah. and like with a smile on his yeah, face, just being yeah. like, Ooh, that was, that was great. I you mean, know? yeah, he's a sicko. <laughs> I mean, these, and I think that's
2: like a, a, a really big thing you see in, in a lot of these, like in the Euro crime stuff. And obviously like, the, the Jallo influence bleeding into there policier and their crime films. It's like our criminals are psychotic. They are sickos. And again, like thinking of like the Dirty Harry influence of like Scorpio, like it isn't just that we have desperate criminals, but we have guys who seemingly like revel in the butchery and the chaos of their acts. And in that moment, like with Bruno Kramer, who is a great actor in his own right, and you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, I only wish there was more of him yeah. in this great duel that they've set up. Uh, like it, it isn't again that he just like goes in and shoots these people, but even with the cops, right, where he's wearing the uniform and the two actual police officers walk in, they're like, "Oh my goodness, what, you know, what happened?" And he just very nonchalantly says to them, "Oh, well, you know, it all went bad." And then I wrote down the line,
1: "C'est 12, monsieur." avoir des veuves et des orphelins." He
2: says, ugly case, gentlemen, there will be widows and orphans right before he shoots both of these presumably family men, police officers. I mean, it's it's twisted, you know, and like that is it. It isn't that crime is a uh, 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 an effect of of a inherently you know, unfair society, you know, where the haves have so much and the, the have-nots have so little. It's that, you know, crime is a product of twisted men, twisted individuals, you know? And, like, we need our own twisted men to hunt them down, to get them. I mean, it's established in both of these films right off the bat that these are people who shouldn't just be behind bars but but deserve a painful and themselves.
1: Yeah, and Minos even has the, uh, you know, stereotypical black leather gloves, you know, that he puts on. Uh, in menacing giallo fashion. Yeah.
2: And that's not the only very uh, you know, weird giallo distinctive feature that Nino's
1: has on <laughs> <That's> correct display. <laughs> no. Uh,
0: what did you both make of that? Yeah, yeah he has like a trauma level fake <laughs> eye that is like glued on with the type of like makeup that you would get at a spirit Halloween. And then it's like this curved piece of glass that they have under that's like caked under that makeup and it protrudes from his head (laughs) so far that it's a miracle that he's even able to wear the sunglasses that he's wearing to obscure it everywhere he goes uh there's also scenes when he's not wearing the fake eye behind the sunglasses that's true they weren't very good about that they didn't properly light the scenes there are definitely moments where we see two functional eyeballs uh, behind those sunglasses <laughs> on top of that they have
2: this like very fucking weird effect where we get like minos's direct pov where yeah. it's like a split screen between like the camera or his working eye and then just this like almost, like, stained glass window of the fake eye that <laughs> yeah. that takes up half of the fucking, like, frame. But what I thought was, like, kind of funny about that, that idea, that conceit, that effect, whatever you want to call it, was that if he is missing an eye, it, yeah. like... <laughs> Why, he why can't does see he see? That. That? Yeah, yeah, why does he see the, the, the glass
0: eye? I didn't understand that POV. It's like just an additional camera that's in this man's head because he yeah he can't see it. He doesn't have a functional eye behind the glass eye. Yeah, very perplexing. Yeah, because it, honestly, it
2: had me at a certain point going like, so is this just some like fetish of his? Is this like an effect that he has donned of like I want people to see my twisted eye or something like that? But like, no, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just (laughs) visual flair that, again, I thought it was like, it looks cool, it looks sick, but it it makes, yeah,
0: physiologically speaking, like, no sense whatsoever. No sense at all. And I guess, you know, as we're talking about, like, really bizarre outfits in the film weird flourishes and twisted individuals i want to go back to the prison as you were mentioning marsh and, and talk a little about salichetti oh, the hawaiian shirt wearing uh, <laughs> yeah. secret mafia prison boss yeah. yeah can you like just kind of walk me through all of that that that, that whole chunk of the movie really fascinated me but i was just going with it at its own pace and not bothering to like backtrack when I was confused and I ended up just like watching it constantly going like what I was very confused about his role specifically so was he working with the police or is he just his own individual mob man He's that's working. in the prison
2: He's working with the prison. He's
1: working with prison guards, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he's running the prison from the inside, but he's also connected to the broader mafia, the guys okay. whose money was stolen at the beginning of the movie in the opening. He's connected okay. to that network, which is why uh, it all gets mucked up. But again, that's... Right, yeah. like
0: when he es- when he escapes and it gets bad. Well, okay. and
2: within the prison, he's specifically, Belmondo discovers running a network for escape with corrupt prison guards using mafia money and whatever, some other outside uh, influence and help that they have. And when Belmondo discovers this, while simply trying to get close to one of the hawks you know, survivors, this guy who was on a job <laughs> with him at the beginning and, and lived to tell the tale and is now in prison. Belmondo's like, oh, well, I can kill two birds with one stone here, no pun intended for the hawk. But yes, he's like, okay, I've got this guy. I need him to help me find the hawk. I've got to get him out of prison. I'll use uh, this this mafia guy's escape network to get us out of here. Because again, all of this has to be done like under the table, all of this, you know, they can't just go in with like a warrant and pull this guy out. They're using this like subterfuge to, I guess, evade, you know, blowing
0: up the fact that this is kind of an illegal thing that they're doing or whatever with the French courts. I was just like confused if he went to the prison essentially like under the supervision or control of the police, but didn't have an exit strategy for getting out of the prison. And that's why he used the mob. Or did he like go in under his own volition for investigation?
2: Yes. He went in under his own, uh, I guess that's a good word
1: to use. Volition.
0: Yeah. He goes in, like no
1: criminal no one knows except the shady okay. minister god yeah it's kind right. of like a
2: an infernal affairs departed situation where shock
1: corridor it.
2: yeah yeah like in order to maintain that because again they don't know who's turned who's
0: corrupt who's working for the other side, so... So he didn't really have an exit strategy. He was just no. confident that his skills would, like, get him out of that yes. prison at, when the time came. Wow. Yeah,
1: and I want to point out that Salicetti, this, like, mafia criminal guy... Uh, wears Hawaiian shirts and looks like Bolsonaro. Like, (laughs) it's insane. (laughs)
0: It's so fucking weird. And gets a bunch of injections in his
1: butt. (laughs) Yeah, he gets injections in his butt. He starts a fucking, like, prison lunch riot. I mean, it hits all the classic, like, prison kind of beats. I did find that section to be relatively weak. You know, the whole time I'm going like, all right, get out of the fucking prison and start hunting the sicko. That's what we paid for.
0: Yeah, I thought the hunter was going to get him. Yeah. You know?
1: Well, yeah. He's sure taking his time. He sure does, because <laughs> because then once they ultimately escape, he has information that will lead him to the hawk, and instead he goes to the meeting spot. For the prison escape network, instead, just being like, I'm gonna deal with this as well. And that's like,
2: yes, he specifically tells, like, oh my god, he specifically tells his handler, like, this one's on the house, like, I'm gonna take care of this for you for free, you know? Yeah,
1: and it's just like the, the film can't maintain. That the trajectory of action that something like Fear Over the City maintains, and something like uh, the mm-hmm. Burglars or Le Marginal maintains, where it's like, yes, he's running, you know, like all the time, and this gets bogged down. It, it turns becomes left like a it turns hangout right, movie yeah. At a certain point. Which is is fine, you know. It's obviously pleasant enough uh, with him in it, but yeah. And then there's this whole sequence where he goes to this like farm or this old inn, uh, and then there's this, you know, just like old man bloodbath shit, you know? He plays he plays possum, you know, in front of this guy who's like, oh, I killed him. And he's just, like, faking being dead, like, so obviously.
0: Yeah, uh, at the place that's called The Inn of the Big Guns, yeah. which I kind of like. Dude, it is
2: the in shootout i loved for a very different reason you know like again the the action sequences in the hunter will get you and and particularly this shootout the the old man bloodbath you've you've called it um is a masterclass in what i would call a slow draw shootout because <laughs> you know we get this kind of standoff every guy has a shotgun and and it is just like a snail's pace for how <laughs> the bloodbath like is executed like in the midst of it all even there's just two guys like fumbling with a ladder outside i i I started i started like like we're trying to just like for some reason go in through a window in a very complicated like you know setup but like i started to find humor in it and i think there are some like little like kind of witty jokes within it you know because it is just like a really kind of like crazy violent but very like bumbling moment of of, of, of action. I also found something that I know was unintentional that, that I, I loved which is that there's a lot of shotguns in this movie and like clearly the guys operating, the actors operating the shotguns and the director aren't really familiar with probably how shotguns work I could tell the direction was like and then rack your shotgun, you know cock the gun for emphasis a little bit of physical, <laughs> you know, flare on it. Um, but <laughs> there's so many moments where guys are like saying something mean and then cocking their shotguns and you see a shell like fly out of it. Because, you know, for those who don't know, when you pump a shotgun, you rack a shell in and you eject the empty case. But if you haven't fired your gun and you rack it, you're just getting rid of an unfired shell. And there are multiple <laughs> moments of, of presumably like, you know. Hitmen and gunmen who are just like throwing out a perfectly fine shotgun shell just to look cool. Yeah, for
1: emphasis. And yeah. there's
2: even a moment where there's there's production sound of a guy doing it in the inn and you hear the shell like hit the hardwood floor.
0: <laughs> like, dude, I was dying. I loved it. I also particularly loved when Jean Pel Belmondo uses a shotgun from across the room to sharpshoot another gun out of a man's hand and, like, not hurt him at all. Yeah, because he's so good. In reality, yeah, he would have cut that guy in half,
2: but. I
1: mean, yeah, it really is just, yeah, a series of wacky moments from the minute they escape the prison. Like, there's a whole little bit where uh, they hide in a truck full of cognac, which is like the The most French <laughs> shit ever, you know. It's like, however, are we going to escape this prison? It's like, get in the tank full of cognac, and then they have this whole row with the truck drivers and all that shit. But and a,
2: a very funny moment where they ambush a couple Englishmen. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Dude,
1: yeah, that
2: was insane.
1: What is this? Let's go. Crazy Frenchman, indeed.
2: Yeah, yeah, a very, like, French joke about the English where they, they you know, ambush a couple British guys for a con- on a country drive and they're a, a Range, range Rover. Rover. <laughs> yeah, and their tweed jackets or whatever. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, my. Yeah, I think as The Hunter Will Get You went on, it became more humorous. Like, it started yes. to feel to me like more of a a much more like witty film, a much more almost like comedic thriller. And I, again, I think it's like, it's part of why it's sort of a, an uneven experience because there are kind of like tonal shifts in it. Like you establish Bruno Kramer as this, like this desperate, Fucking psycho that's out there, you know. France is being terrorized by this guy, and then like all of the urgency just dissipates for for a series of like Belmondo, like smirking and just like you know pantsing guys, just like embarrassing these dudes that he's going up against. And man, where's Bruno Kramer? I mean, honestly, he disappears for, like, an hour of the movie.
1: Yeah, he does, like, one more robbery... Uh, which I think features the same motorcycle that's in Fear Over the City. Did you guys catch that? Yes. There's a Kawasaki no. prominently <laughs> featured that mm-hmm. Minos rides. Same color. It's like I think it's literally the same bike, and it's probably Belmondo. I was gonna say, I, I
2: did think. I was like, is that Bondo Belmondo's
1: personal Kawasaki? Bondo's Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah because Bruno yeah. Kramer, Bruno Kramer, like, you know, seduces this boy and is like, I'll buy you a motorcycle. And it's the fucking Kawasaki that the serial killer rides in in fear over the city. Wow,
0: I hadn't made that connection. Yeah, that good. was
1: blowing my mind. But yeah, he, he similarly there, you know, like, executes several people. I mean, he's really chilling, but uh, again, he's, he's sidelined for most of it. It, of course, you know, ends up with them face-to-face in the uh, in the finale. And we get to see uh, Belmondo box a little bit as Bruno Kramer takes to the champagne bottle. And it's really, a, yeah, a, you know, a broken champagne bottle versus fists kind of thing. On a plane.
2: Yeah. In this moment where, you know, we've gone through this just huge sort of detour for this, like, showdown with the Hawk and the Hunter. And and what, you know, when you look at the, the cover and when you read what it's about, it's like, it's about these two men going after each other. And they really have nothing to do with each other until this moment on the plane. And I was thinking of your, when, when we were discussing uh, Michael Mann's black hat. And how it's like, you know, you go through all of this and it just sort of climaxes with a guy stabbing another guy. You know, just like <laughs> these two guys just meeting in public and just like one guy getting like shanked, you know. Like all that, that like techno babble and that like globe hopping, you know, all the detours of Black Hat, you know. And again, it just comes down to like a duel between two guys and like just a like a, a homemade knife. Isn't it even like some just sort of like... Jerry rigged shank and that he creates, but like this movie is kind of like the same thing where it's like, what was all that? Like you were bringing it up, right? Like what's all that shit with the prison? What's going on there? And it just climaxes with Belmondo, Bruno Kramer, like fighting over a broken champagne bottle on an airplane, you know, like bizarre. That's all this led up to a guy getting stabbed in the stomach with a broken champagne bottle,
0: you know? Yeah, no, they, they, it's much more focused and they pour over many more details in, in fear over the city. And, you know, you mentioned that joke about the like here in the production sh- sound with the shells hitting the ground there is like a really fantastic sound booth sequence uh, where we have Jean-Paul Belmondo like at the mixer you know playing back the recordings from Oh yeah from... He's going full blowout dude Totally
1: Je
2: serai désormais le bras d'une justice qui condamnera et exécutera sans pitié toutes celles qui se voteront dans cette immense boue sexuelle qui submerge le monde On la repasse Non, l'autre.
0: Faire l'amour, Minos, vous ne savez sans doute pas ce que ça veut dire, mais ça peut être très beau. Il est assis près de moi, il est presque nu. Nous vous plaignons beaucoup, tous les deux.
2: Remontez sur Minos.
1: Vous le savez très bien, Hélène. Vous avez encore vu votre amant aujourd'hui. N'est-ce pas que vous l'avez vu Dites je l'ai vu.
0: J'ai le droit de faire ce que je veux de ma vie.
2: (rire) La loi vous en donne le droit. L'église ferme hypocritement les yeux. Le monde moderne vous
0: applaudit. Mais ma
2: justice qui en est une vous a déjà condamné.
0: Ouais, ouais, je l'ai. Yeah, playing back all of these recorded phone calls from all the phones that they had tapped. And he's at the switchboard, you know, raising and lowering the levels, making the, making the music really more prominent or the sounds of the crowd, trying to decipher, like, where is all of this coming from? And he does eventually come to the conclusion that it is at, at a, a fair of some sort, you know? Um, and that, like, it's, it's always the same phone booth. It's right outside a fair. And I love him immediately, you know, Get me every fare that's uh, in the Paris metro area, like right now. Like get someone on it. And I would have loved to have seen like a scene of like that guy, the guy like trying to track down every single fare in the Paris metropolitan area to report back to Jean-Paul Belmondo.
2: I'm pretty sure his partner even like barely puts in any effort and more or less turns to him and is like. No, like that's too
0: much. <laughs> like there's too many goddamn fairs. You know? Yes. G- g- narrow this down a little bit for us. Right. And I love like the 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 logic pattern that they reach because when they finally they get another phone call while they're in the mixing booth and they realize, like, hey, this this one doesn't have the sounds of the fairs. And John Pelbo Mondo's like, perfect. Find out which fairs packed up shop and were not in operation today. <laughs> and that's first of all that's not even how they
1: find him uh that's just is a total dead end for their investigation <laughs> yeah, and they arrest uh they arrest the wrong guy and it reminded me of McHugh. do you guys remember like all the stuff in McHugh about like john wayne roughing up like lefties in the street or whatever oh yes and so there's this scene where they arrest the wrong guy who's just been using this phone booth that they think Minos was using and he's a total like you know know it lefty intellectual mm-hmm. type dude he's a he's a may 68 guy yeah and like oh, yeah. they make oh, that point point. and belmondo even says like come on cut to the chase we don't have to play riot cop versus student protester you know dude. like oh yeah yeah <laughs> And that's so what I mean. Awesome. Like the, the,
2: the like the, the shift with a lot of these police thrillers, whether oh or not God. you say it starts in Bullet, but like definitely in Dirty Harry and the French connection, and then in Italy and in France, the the sort of like reactionary response to sixty eight, whether in the US or particularly for the French
1: in oh, Paris, yeah. you know? And then fucking Paul shows up at the fucking police station with his fake eye, a.k.a. Minos. And, like, it is it is all ridiculous, right? Because it's like Belmondo has met him at the hospital uh, when he was checking up on this nurse who had been getting phone calls. And so, like, we've seen him, and we're pretty sure it's him, you know? <laughs> Not really a secret. <laughs> um, but, yeah, then he just, like, classic serial killer shit. He's, like, inserting himself into the investigation and is like have you thought about the hospital mm-hmm. all these cases aren't connected to the hospital you know he's like begging <laughs> to be caught and so yeah it's not even like there's this whole scene of like Belmondo as auteur sound mixer and then just like leads nowhere. It was just to show Belmondo like working working the decks. Well, know? I
2: will say yes. As good as his ears are, his eyes are uh not so hot because he couldn't yeah. see the freaking crazy eye <laughs> yeah. that this guy has. And just think, like maybe this is a
0: thing to like investigate or or ask about or inquire about, you know. Yeah, you'd think a as a, a cop as gruff as him wouldn't wouldn't have been nearly as polite, you know, to not bring up the fact that this dude has a glass eye that is like presumably pushing up against the frames of his glasses
2: and the one thing that did like really blow my mind is that like that he was chasing him they were shooting at each other he was chasing him across the roof and he doesn't recognize any aspect of him i mean he didn't have a mask on when he was chasing him through the streets and he doesn't in any way, shape, or form, think, man, this guy kind of looks like the dude that was trying to kill me on the roof of <laughs> the fucking department store. Yeah,
0: I was so confused by that. The very like the very next time we see Jean-Paul Belmondo and the killer like have a normal conversation after that chase, I legitimately, I'm like, I missed something. Like, what? I wh- he didn't <laughs> missed see something. Him. You didn't miss something. He like, missed it. Like, he never saw that guy's face when they were fighting on the roof, or just even his shoulder. I mean, look at this guy.
2: Yeah, and this is also building off of, like, yeah, that moment where when he is, you know, he's he's got Minos in his sights, he's bearing down on his motorcycle in this, this car chase after the train, after the roof, after the mannequins, and it's like, all right, I'm going to nail him. You know, his, his colleagues radio in, like, we've got Marcucci, and he just busts an immediate U-turn and is like, ah, fuck this guy. And then Minos... Uh, like squeals to the press about it. And is like, he almost had me. And then he just let me go. And we get an awesome scene. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is his like dressing down that he gets when they're, you know, his superiors are reading all of the French newspapers to him, you know? And it's this awesome bit with Belmondo, where while he's being, and again, this is, this is what makes Belmondo fucking Belmondo. You know, you can imagine so many other actors in that moment of like, okay, you're getting dressed down by your superiors. Like, you you know, sit here and act like you don't care. But what is Belmondo doing? Like a child, like a, like a, like a impetuous child, he's swiveling back and forth In his chair, like, fuck these guys, fuck what they're saying. So much contempt, so much disdain for authority. And then even the camera, like, it cuts to, like, his POV. Yeah, we get swivel cam. I fucking love it. And then it builds with—it sort of, like, ends with this very French exchange where they're they're sort of saying to him, like— you know your problem is you go for it with the muscles and not with the brain. You choose muscles over brain. And his response, I love it, dude. Is you only get the shit in like French movies like this. It's like this really philosophical then exchange where he kind of goes like, "Well, what are muscles anyway?"
0: You do trouvez pas que vous en faites un peu trop dans le style petite tranche et gros bras, rien dans la tête ou dans les muscles?
1: Dans le fond, qu'est-ce que, c'est que les muscles? Quelques grammes de gélatine durcie placée où il faut you know and they
2: have this like weird it's yeah. <laughs> like weird moan, like what even are muscles you know like that's his reaction dude it was like a it was like a kid being dragged into the principal's office and and only belmondo can deliver it that way. I mean, his range in this movie is on full display. We get the drama. We get the intensity. We get the humor. We get the new wave, devil may care, coolness. It even has this like awesome small scene where it turns into like a domestic French
0: uh, comedy drama where he's shacking up with the nurse. stakeout, yeah. I also love the idea that the cops, his superiors are just really pissed at him because of the amount of property damage that he probably caused. When he was like tearing up the city during that chase, and you know, we were calling back to our first episode with the hunter. I had a sudden flashback while watching the film, too, above the law, where there's that scene when Steven Seagal like totally wrecks up that convenience store. And at the time, my reaction was, Who pays for this? Like, this is like an unbelievable amount of damage, and I love how in fear over the city when Jean-Paul Belmondo like falls through the glass roof of someone's apartment that they're like a young couple in bed. He just turns to them and says, don't worry, we'll pay for this. And I was like, (laughs) okay, now I understand. Yes. Like I wish Seagal had made that clear to the convenience store owner of whose place he totally tarnished. And you know what, now that you bring it up
2: as well, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't in our discussion of the hunter and Above the law, there was also uh, a bit
0: of Seagal dangling from a train, uh, an L train in Chicago, right? Wasn't there also like a sequence? There's the great Chuck Norris on the train in... uh yes code of silence code yes. of conduct yeah yeah we
2: we did now it's all coming back to me we did we did cover that because there is train okay. shit <laughs> in above the law as well and you were like well it was better in code of silence because he like jumps yeah. into the river or whatever right
0: you yeah know? exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah no lies detective yeah but you know it is funny when it does all get wrapped up In fear over the city, when he figures out what's going on, when the results from the lab come back, that this collection of shattered glass that John Pel Belmondo had in his pocket after the initial chase uh, is revealed to him by the lab assistant, like, oh, this is a glass eye. That's where this came from. Dude, and I love that. Yeah, well, just it's so funny that when that happens initially, like when he's chasing this guy who he clearly can't see. And then his glass eye falls out and it rolls down the roof. And when Belmondo tries to grab it, he just smashes it on the roof and he's like, I better pocket this just so I know like what this might be later. He
2: fucking pulverizes it into like dust and then like (laughs) dumps it off on a poor lab technician is like, put this back together. I mean, it is like,
0: (laughs) it looks like a handful of sand by the time he got (laughs) done with it. It's also probably just covered in all the lint and like cigarette butts that (laughs) are like in his pocket, you know, (laughs) tobacco. Yeah. And
1: then, I mean, we, we God, the the film really does keep escalating because even before it turns into, like, a hostage situation, media spectacle incident, Minos fucking does terrorism to a porno theater. Yeah. Oh he throws a fucking grenade at just, like... People going to see uh what's perverse it? Pauline. Yeah, per- there's perverse a line Pauline. Out the door. Pamela Sweet <laughs> in Perverse Pauline. And we also in the film see an exorcist poster. Shout out uh Billy Friedkin. But uh yeah, it's perverse Pauline that the French citizens want to see. Because there's a massive line, and Minos rolls up on the Kawasaki and just fucking pulls out a hand grenade like this guy's on some fucking like Lights up that matinee crowd. Oh my good. God! Yeah,
2: <laughs> and then and yes, as 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 Ryan pointed out, you know, it, it climaxes with Belmondo going commando style and and yeah. dangling from a, a helicopter like over the, the roof of this building, high over the streets of Paris. And again, gotta emphasize, folks, for those listening at home, this is one hundred percent Jean Paul Belmondo. Dangling like next to the Eiffel Tower, and I, I, that shot to me really summed up for me like this phase of of his career. Like if you could sum this 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 whole portion of his journey as a, as a performer up into a single frame, I think it is that. It is it is Belmondo in a harness, dangling hundreds of feet above the streets of Paris with the Eiffel Tower over his shoulder for us. Like, this is him. This is what he's doing for us. This is what he wants us to see and to revel in and to appreciate as an audience. I mean, I thought it was it was beautiful. I mean, so, it almost brought a tear
1: to my eyes. So he can once again uh, burst in through a window and go hand to hand combat with the, with the villain of the <laughs> film and and put him down.
0: Inside this crazy penthouse, like or this just like giant apartment for this porn star, which, Pamela Sweet. Yeah, Pam, yeah, her perverse Pauline's apartment is insane cuz it's like decked out with all of these photographs of her on the wall, like, nude, and it's, like, where her and her whole family lives. Like, they have their child. Can you imagine growing up, uh, like, not trying to pass any judgment on perverse Pauline, but just, like, growing up with, like, nude photographs of your mother, like, plastered all over the wall of your home? And that guy was referred to as her pimp, not her husband. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, oh, I didn't even catch that. And he's just, like, some weird
1: blonde guy. He's got, like, Village of the Damned vibe. I don't know what's going on with him.
2: And the poor maid gets roped into it, too. I mean, it's a it's a strange thing. And you you both, I'm sure, noticed when, like, he goes into a bedroom at a certain point, and it's just like this weird pink furry bed that's suspended on chains or something like that. Yeah. Wild stuff. I mean, I, I really have to say, like, uh, I mean, this movie is, I think, I mean, it really does stand up against just about any other like action thrill ride you could you could want like it's it's so incredible that he was doing this i mean i was thinking of course about you know uh, you could draw a lot of comparisons to like what tom cruise has is now trying to do in his career as he's gotten gotten older i mean i was you know once i discovered this aspect of his career trying to really understand it like why did he suddenly like want to do this why did he feel this this drive, like with each film, to to continue to try to push the stakes up the ante for for what he's putting himself through. I mean, I even read reviews of this. I don't know if you guys saw any of these, where like there were there were people who were like reviewing Fear Over the City and like critics who were saying like, why would Belmondo risk his life for a movie like this? <laughs> you know? Like, like people aren't recognizing like like how dangerous the shit that he's doing is, and they're just like, just for some genre thriller, like just for some cop movie that's not even like unique or interesting. It's like, but it's like to me almost on a certain level, like I feel like, you know, it's like as he was getting older and maybe this is like what Tom Cruise is going through. It's like these guys are just like, I got to prove I'm still virile. I'm still young. I can do it. I can, I can, I can make this shit happen. I can still be this vibrant Guy, It's like they're they had this like death drive, you know, but it's also just this 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 weird way of of trying to to like outrun
1: time, outrun old age on a certain level. It's also a little something for the fans, because, you know, (laughs) guys like Cruz and Belmondo understand that they are stars and that that means they need to deliver something. To the people, and however you, you conceive of that, you know, as a star, you know, many people have done many different things, but for guys like that, it's like, people like to see that shit. That's never changed since the beginning of cinema, like, people love to see
0: Daredevil shit, you know? Uh, why wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely scratches an itch. It's It's something very joyful to... To witness. So I guess Andy, what would you say is is your favorite Pete, showpe- like just like showcase of Jean-Paul Belmondo's stunt work? Like from this period in his career, like what is the one that has like your favorite death-defying stunts where he really is like putting himself on the line for the pure bliss and enjoyment of the French movie going public and us today?
2: Well, um you know, we've kind of already mentioned it, we've brought it up a little bit, but like I, I was like hounding Marsh for like a year to watch uh, Jacques Deray's Le Marginal, which was my first entry into this this phase of, of of his career. And I just was like, I mean, and this that's ten years after fear over the
1: city. That he's he way use. buffer. He looks like a Streets of Rage character. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he's like, he's kind of got like this this triangle bulge now because he's like work, been working out like a lot more, but he's older. So like, it's fucking wild. It's just a really like funny movie. And it's,
2: it's, it kind of looks like an episode of Miami Vice. Uh, it has this sort of like French, you know, southern France kind of flair to it. There's, yeah, Marsh mentioned speedboats and and all kinds of shit, and it's also... Like I described it to Marsh as like a jacket movie because there's this really funny thing where like every goddamn scene in the movie, he has like a different like cool dad jacket on, like a leather bomber, a, yeah. a, like a letterman. Like it's just a series of Belmondo like strutting into a scene with a cool jacket that he, he wasn't wearing the, the previous scene and beating people up, shooting people. Kicking people in the face, jumping out of buildings, jumping off of fucking helicopters. Like, Le Marginal goes so goddamn hard. There's even a crazy scene where he he is Belmondo doing Jackie Chan shit. He is, he is sprinting across lanes of traffic on a highway, and cars are... Nearly striking him. Like they are going full (laughs) fucking speed. And he's just like pirouetting across several lanes of like highway. The
1: wrong way on the highway.
2: And we're talking about French drivers here, folks. If you've ever seen a movie where people (laughs) are driving in France. Oh my good God. Yeah. Le Marginal rips. Um, I would also recommend a movie that I just re watched for this week, a movie called Le Magnifique, which I know you. Both of you would get a lot of pleasure out of, but definitely Ryan, our our Bond head, uh, would, <laughs> would would have so much, so much joy in in that film, which is like a spoof of Bond films. Uh, that that you know, Belmondo plays a writer of Bond esque novels who, like Walter Mitty, is sort of fantasizing himself in the books that he's writing. So it's got a lot of really like funny shit in it. But you know, like I said in, in my intro, uh, a lot of this stuff is, is kind of hard to, to get over here. A lot of this stuff hasn't been released in quality DVDs or, or Blu-rays. And I have seen some, you know, you can see compilations on YouTube of some of the other stuff that's that's harder to find. And one that I've been meaning to watch, so this is also for me, you know, this is a recommendation for myself and for our listeners and anybody that can maybe help us get a copy of this. Uh, he made, in 1982, a movie called Ace of Aces, which is a, a movie where he plays like a fighter pilot. And I have seen stunt compilations from it. And in that one, he is like he's wing walking, he's, he's dropping out of like biplanes and, and insane, insane shit. And I know that that movie was also one of the biggest hits of his career and the biggest hit in France of 1982, a commercial like, you know, uh, whirlwind. So, so yeah, I mean, he's got a bunch in this phase, but, but two that I know are, are, Uh, Probably easier to get your hands on would be Le Marginal and Le Magnifique. Thank you very much.
1: Well, it was uh, Andy's topic this week, but uh, next week it's Ryan's topic. What is up?
0: Well, I recently had a trip to Chicago where we all went and saw EO, well-documented on the gauntlet. And uh, when I left... Seattle was out of control. It was like 90 degrees one day. It had the worst air quality of any city in the world, any major city in the world. The weather was bad. Now that I'm back, it started raining again, and we're already on like hydrologic warnings. You know, that, that like the temperatures have plummeted. We've got 40 degree days. There's too much rain. Everything this is, is really not very, my problem. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Everything feels extreme. And I was thinking about weather extremes. And I thought it'd be fun to really lean into that for next week looking at the forecast of the gauntlet. I was thinking, like, let's look at some extreme weather. Let's look at tornadoes. Let's look at floods. Let's look at earthquakes. Whatever you want. I don't know if you both want to sync up on, like, a particular type of extreme weather or just like let's just throw everything at it let's see these hurricanes let's see these tsunamis like what do we got let's let's see some extreme weather next week and all that that entails severe weather warning forecast for the gauntlet
1: listeners next week <laughs> yes <laughs> as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com Thanks, everyone. The
0: Bravo!
1: It's formidable to have achieved No. It's a moi. you.
0: Fait beaucoup de karaté, je crois. Oui. C'est Des vidéos aussi. oui Deux tirs rapides. Je ne non plus. Écoutez, je vous arrête tout de suite. On m'a déjà fait le coup à l'armée. Mais... Savez parler l'anglais Oui. Bon, alors, qu'envie de Je veux la liste de toutes les femmes qui, depuis trois mois, ont demandé le changement de leur numéro de téléphone. Je
1: veux aussi savoir pourquoi elles ont demandé ce changement. La vraie vous avoir coupé votre téléphone, c'est ça. Me va. deviez. Je n'ai pas le nombre d'affaires de police qui ont été résolumentes par ces camps d'être